really got to try on that left-hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Cheers and welcome, welcome once again to the Scrum of the Earth podcast, the weekly show that brings you news, reviews, great interviews, and so much more all about the world of rugby. I am your host. My name is David Lawrence, and I'm an American rugby fan who follows the game wherever I can find it all over the globe. If you'd like to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. I'm easy to find on all your socials, or you can always just drop me an email at the scrum of the earth at gmail.com. Well, there was obviously a full slate of rugby this weekend, so why don't we get this show started? So starting as always with our current updates, regular listeners will, of course, recall that my band had a show recently, which was pretty great. It was really fun. But I also play in a different group when my partner is unavailable to sing, and we're actually going to be playing a show next month in historic Concord, Massachusetts. This band is more... Uh, I was trying to find the word I don't malleable I guess basically when we have an opportunity to play we reach out to several people and just see who's available so there's different iterations at different times we're basically the barbarians um, we're called face for radio and of course if you'd like to check it out just get in touch via any of the usual methods I will see if there are any tickets left uh, just kidding it's free and there are no tickets but it will be a ton of fun um, so for those of you keeping track some of the names of the bands I've played in over the years have included the Cosmic Unconscious the Headless Bunnies Jesus' Silverware Cruel Shoes Poor York and perhaps my favorite Political Suicide it's Yes, Isa, I'd say it is good news this week in that Springbok captain Sia Khaleesi is back from injury, far ahead of schedule. When he got hurt, it was widely presumed that he would miss out on the World Cup with a few weeks to go. He's back out there playing and looking good, doing it. Quoting here from Planet Rugby, quote, All Blacks number eight, Artie Savia, is delighted to see Sia Khaleesi back in the field following the Springboks skipper's recovery from injury. Rivals on the pitch, but friends away from the field, the two players will go head-to-head when the All Blacks and Springboks clash at Twickenham on Friday. Khaleesi is playing just his second match since returning from a knee problem, which ruled him out for almost four months. The box captain uh, started against Wales last weekend and impressed as they emerged 52-16 to triumphant at the Principal Stadium. Instead of wrapping him in cotton wool ahead of the Rugby World Cup, head, uh, head coach Jack, uh, Jacques Ninabar is giving him another outing. Quote, Sia is an inspirational leader, a good friend, Savia told reporters. To see him come back after his injury at such a fast rate, it's a miracle, pretty much. It's awesome that he's there, and I know he plays a massive part in the Springbok culture and lifting their boys. It's good for Sia, and it's good for rugby, unquote. So the last time these teams played each other was the second round of the Rugby Championship in July. South Africa were left shell-shocked by the All Blacks' lightning start as the hosts moved 17-0 in front in the opening quarter. That stunning beginning to the game laid the platform for New Zealand's 35-20 triumph, which ultimately decided the title. Sorry about that. Quote, no doubt they're planning a way to stop that happening again, Savia said. They're going to come at us. They pose a massive threat with their physicality, their threats around the breakdown. So we've got to nail our structures, our game plan, and be ready for things that go, uh, for things that go our way. Weird quote. We would, of course, see how that would go this very weekend. Yeah. So moving on to our thoughts of the week. And again, quoting here from Planet Rugby, I've got to find a new site, guys. Anyway. 
Quote, traditionally, rugby limited players to representing one nation. However, late in 2021, World Rugby changed the eligibility laws, allowing players to change nationalities, provided specific criteria has been met, which include, number one, less than 100 tests played, number two, a three-year stand down from test rugby, and three, a parent or grandparent must have been born in the country the player that wishes to represent. The ruling was founded with the basis of helping mainly the Pacific nations who often see their talent play abroad. However, other countries have also capitalized on the change. Planet Rugby took a closer look at all the players at the Rugby World Cup who have changed nationality. So starting with Pool A, Richard Hardwick will run out for Namibia as the only player from the pool to have changed nationalities. The flanker rose through the domestic ranks in Australia to earn two caps for the Wallabies in 2017. However, as he was born in Namibia's capital, he was able to make the switch to the national team in 2022. Looking at Pool B, Tonga are the team with the most converted players since the law change, with former Wallaby Adam Coleman and a trio of quality former All Blacks, Charles Piatau, Malachi Fekitoa, a 2015 World Cup winner, and George Moala, all uh, heading to France to represent their home nation. After voting against the law change, South Africa has made use of it through second row John, uh, John Klein, who was born in the country. After some time with the Stormers, he headed to Munster, where he became eligible through naturalization and played on five occasions for Ireland in 2019, including two appearances at the World Cup. After a United Rugby Championship winning season, the defending world champions recruited the lock. Scotland have also capitalized on the change through loose forward Jack Dempsey, who is a former Wallaby. Dempsey looks completely transformed and is playing out of his socks in the colors of Scotland. Since his move to Glasgow Warriors, Dempsey has found impressive form, earning him a World Cup spot in an emerging side. Pool D, Samoa are second in terms of how many converted players they have in their squad, with a total of four, which includes three former All, uh, All Blacks and a former Wallaby, Limo Sapuanga, Stephen Luatua, and Charles Famuina are the three ex-New Zealanders, all of which, it should be all of whom, could play a significant role in France. Luatua has been outstanding for Bristol Bears, while Sopoanga will add some class at 15 because Christian Leofano will be running the side from 10. The great fly half has been massive for Pacific Rugby lately with a senior role in Moana Pacifica's Super Rugby Pacific Journey. Pretty cool stuff. I advise you to check out that entire article, though I pretty much just read the whole thing. So that, of course, brings us to our reviews. And, you know, based on what I've recorded so far, by the way, I do want to say sorry about the voice. Not sure exactly what's up with that. Um, it's like 50-50 that I had COVID at the end of last week and this weekend. Um, hard to say. All, all my tests are like 13 months past due. So it's probably just allergies. Anyway, last week, I was lucky enough to chat with Jamie Wall, an author and expert on New Zealand rugby. If you missed that one, I really, really highly recommend it. He is just awesome. But the process of discussing the 100-year-old rivalry between the Springboks and the All Blacks got me properly fire, uh, fired up for the latest clash, this one at Twickenham on Friday night. This one ended up being a tough one to watch, for me at least. It, it was possibly the worst performance by the All Blacks I've ever seen, like, even now, I'm just completely dumbfounded looking back on it. I just, I don't understand how so many things could have gone so badly wrong all at once. Um, my weird little take on it is the referee sort of set the tolerance level to three, but the Kiwi defense came in set to four. So even when they sort of tried to turn it down a little bit, they only brought it down to three and a half. I mean, the sheer number of penalties was mind-boggling. Even when they got pinged over and over, they just couldn't help themselves. So the game... Oy vey. 
this was a really tough one. I can already tell a lot of my notes are going to sound like sour grapes, but there we are. Uh, so for instance, the sound sucked at the opening. There, I said it. You, they just never got the mix right. You couldn't hear the anthems properly. There was bad audio when they focused on players. The haka may as well have been shouted into a well. I honestly wondered, it, it might be something simple, like the production crew were just brand new to Twickenham and just couldn't get things cherry. Anyway, this was the 105th test between these two teams. And with a last-minute roster change, South Africa came in with a 7-1 split on the bench. When they mentioned that, I foolishly wondered if that would somehow come into play in favor of the ABs. But, spoiler alert, no. No, it did not. Uh, pretty much couldn't have gone worse for the Kiwis over the first 10 minutes. Constant penalties, all South Africa in terms of ball and territory. Multiple warnings of yellow cards to come issued to Sam, uh, issued to Sam Kane. Absolutely pissing down rain. It was a double whammy with Scott Barrett getting yellow carded at the same time Tyrell Lomax thudded to the field and didn't really get back up, clutching his knee and being carted off not to return. Nine penalties and two yellow cards in just 16 minutes led us to the first try of the game. At 18 minutes, it was an understated 7-0. to nil. Then it was Kurtley Aronsa with what the comms called the easiest try of his career, 14-0 at 35 minutes. And then Scott Barrett back from the sin bin for a like two minutes quickly owen farreld Mal uh, malcolm marks and saw red bye bye night night for me that was the biggest moment of the night if they lose him for any significant part of the rugby world cup i mean yeah uh one little odd side note the cameras <clears throat> they caught two box fans drinking from bottles in the audience and i was like wait a minute they only do plastic containers in the stadium, surely. These two fans, they, they sort of seem to make a half-hearted attempt to hide their, you know, possible contraband. Please, if if you were there or have ever been to Twickenham, let me know. Do they sell glass bottles of beer there? Seems nuts these days. Anyway, speaking of Malcolm Marks, it was he showing all the skills as he got one through maybe 90 seconds into the second half and get ready for more sour grapes. <sighs> I'm sorry. South Africa are absolutely cheating with the way they use the medical personnel. They send and receive signals. They disrupt the flow of, of the game intentionally. They strategically go to the ground for random injuries that turn out not to be injuries. Like, please, please, World Rugby, you need to get this ish contained and sorted out before things kick off in earnest in a couple of weeks. It's so egregious. Anyway, it was Cam Roygaard banishing the possibility of a shutout, but... That was at minute 71. It was well over. Another side note, I, you've probably noticed listening to the show, I've never really liked Faf de Klerk, but even I had to smile at his through-the-legs pass to get himself out of some real trouble and create yet another opportunity for his dominant team. The scores came fast and furious. By the end, it was 35-7, to 7, quote, a complete embarrassment, quote, unquote, as the comments put it, with news of a ban from the red card looming on the horizon, a nightmare even for the All Blacks, still in shock, am I? Well, England versus Fiji was next for me, and, I mean, you surely know by now, right? What a day! It was an historic day for rugby in Fiji, and if you believe the comms, a day that would reverberate throughout the Pacific Islands and the entirety of so-called Tier 2 rugby nations. England, of course, had never lost to Fiji, and had technically never lost to any Tier 2 nation anywhere at any time. There was, of course, an air of confidence like a mist sort of hanging over Twickenham. The home fans were all smiles as Courtney Laws came out with his beautiful children to honor his 100th cap for England, the people's captain, they said he was called. Despite this theoretical optimism, the comms referred to Twickenham in regards to English rugby as the Temple of Gloom. 
that was effectively the end to any smiles, except among the massive blocks of, you know, baby blue flags occupying wide swaths of the stadium as an historical uh, historical inevitability began to descend on this affair. Quick side note. Most players either wear scrum caps or they don't, but Maro Itoje, he seems to change his mind like every game. Anyone out there have any insights into that? Like, what's his thought process? It's, it's weird to me that he goes, you know, cranium commando sometimes, but only at certain times. Yeah, I'm clearly watching too much rugby. So if you're a regular listener, uh, you'll know I cannot help but describe the conditions for these tests. And this one, it was a classic. The camera's giving us an absolutely beautiful shot of the crystal blue skies dotted with cottony white clouds just prior to kickoff. But the cops warned us there were ominous clouds rolling in and there was literal foreshadowing on the pitch, quote, we're in for the full gamut of a British summer, unquote, bemoaned the comms as the first drizzle began to descend. The first try of the night went to Johnny May, who, I swear to all gods, I had completely and utterly forgotten about. Like, no offense to him. I just forgot he was, a, you know, a player who exists. And then, if you were watching, you surely recall that five-minute chunk from 25 to 30 minutes when there were like 146 knock-ons. The entire contest became what the comms accurately described as a comedy of errors. It was very early in the second half that Fiji found their first lead of the day, and I'm pretty sure it was Shanks on the comms. I mean, did he just like sleep in the booth overnight or what? Uh, it's weird too. Usually, you know, where I watch, they never tell you or show who the comms are. Shank's voice is so, you know, distinctive. I always think I know it's him, but I could have sworn during this, like more than once, the other guy referred to him as something besides that. Uh, anyway, apologize for not being clear on that. It's kind of obtuse to me. Um, anyway, he said, quote, there's lots of people still in the bars. They need to get back to their seats to see this, unquote. And he may not have known just how prescient that would be. Marcus Smith, despite the massive and, to me, mostly unwarranted criticism, I mean, if you make up a list of problems with the English national rugby team, I don't think Marcus Smith's name shows up in like the top 20, but he got a lovely try to really spark his team. It was 15 to 23 entering the final quarter, definitely within reach for a competent team. And when Marchant got a beauty in the corner to make it a one-point game, I mean, Fiji easily could have panicked or folded. They did not. With just seven minutes remaining, the Fijian number 21, whose name, I'm sorry, I missed, and they never put on the screen, sent the lead back to eight points. All my notes started to involve words like unreal, and I suddenly realized that I might be watching history in the making. Chills went down my spine. I'm not even exaggerating. That eight-point difference was reflected in the total. It was a brand new day for Fiji. As the final whistle went, the comms droned, quote, the atmosphere, funereal. England sinking to the, their nadir but to fiji it is simply their greatest moment in rugby history unquote 22 to 30 was the final score and he bewildered twickenham i am still utterly and completely stunned so so good so scotland versus georgia was next this was a weird one i i, I gotta be honest I, I wasn't sure at all what to expect or make of it going into this one the first half was a total non-starter for the Scots, who seemed intent on giving away every golden opportunity they found, though the Georgians weren't exactly keen on capitalizing. Uh, it was a dicey 0-6 to six headed into the break, but Scotland began to find themselves in the following period. By the time they got it to 14-6, to six, Finn came out of the game, thank all gods, and the reserves started to show some edge that they would need if this team is to go anywhere at all in France. Quote, by our reckoning, everyone's in off the bench except for Chris Harris, unquote, said the comms. And that made me laugh somehow. Not even sure why. But 
Ben Healy, again, looked intent on doing some damage for his newfound country. At 58 minutes, it was Jack Dempsey smashing one down to create some scoreboard separation. And Johnny Beatty said, quote, Scotland have just gone up a gear and a half in the second period, unquote. Then speak of the devil, Chris Harris. He found his way onto the field with the score at 21 to 6. <clears throat> the momentum seemed to be with Scotland as we scrolled into the final quarter of play. A lovely attacking opportunity that had the crowd literally gasping, going out of bounds just before the superhuman Duhan could pounce on it. But it still felt like the guests were fast running out of gas. Uh, some frustration then as Richie Gray got collar tackled in the air. But Matthew Reynaud, he was not bothered. And it was soon after that that Scotland did get their fourth try. I was starting to get really worried about the physical toll the final 12 minutes might hold. I have to say, so I feel like this is one of those games where, after the fact, people will have nothing but good things to say as far as Scotland goes. I, I kind of feel the opposite. Like, they should have been in control from the start. They absolutely were not. So this this coming week, right now, like, people who are trumpeting how good Scotland look right now, I fear you may be overreacting. Nevertheless, it took Ben Healy two attempts, but he eventually found Duhan with a sick pass at, way out wide for one last try. By the final whistle, it was 33-6, to six, Georgia unable to find any points in the second half. A nice but befuddling result for Scotland, scoring five tries in the second half after an anemic first 40 minutes. Weird one. Then we had Ireland versus Samoa. It was an interesting one. I agreed with the comms around the half-hour mark. Ireland just looked like they should have been doing more. Like I felt like it had to do, for me, with the terrible kit they were wearing. I mean, Ireland should not wear white. It, it looked like garbage, and they're, they're so good right now that, for me, it's hard to find anything else to blame it on for such a meh performance like this one. It was tied 7-all at the break. So as the rain poured down, Samoa had, been, uh, had found a bit of dominance, found themselves ahead 7-13 to before Ireland scored, a draw, uh, scored to draw close. And by the way, what a weekend. The number one team in the world behind at 55 minutes, not to mention the result at Twickenham. And there was a beautiful comment from Ryle Nugent as he said, quote, as the rains pour down, Samoa light up the sky, unquote. Loved that one. Good one. So it came down to a single throw by Samoa going awry, spoiling their final shot at a steal for a victory. Ireland held on to win it, not prettily by any stretch, but it was 17 to 13 by the end. So close. So Italy versus Japan was next. Italy, they scored quickly in this one, but uh, Japan, who have looked let's face it, pretty bad lately. They answered in short order. It was a very reasonable 7-5 to five after the first quarter of play and 17-11 to 11 at halftime. Just after the 50-minute mark, it was Matsushima tearing through to make it 20-16. to 16. Italy looking porous on defense. We had a nice little one-try contest entering the final 10 minutes with the home side up 28-21. to 21. Could the visitors pull a rabbit out of their hat? No, the answer turned out to be Definitely not, as Italy found two more tries and ended up doubling up their guests, 42-21. to 21. Very strange scoreline, considering how it went while you were actually watching. So then, France versus Australia. This was the 52nd time these two nations have clashed, with the Aussies leading 29-20 to 20 victories overall, and of course the two draws. Quick side note, it was so funny, as they waited in the tunnel to come out, each player had a kid to come out with them, and uh, <laughs> this one little girl was clearly flabbergasted at the size of Will Skelton. She was just gaping at him and kind of motioning to the other kids like, are you seeing this right now? It was amazing. Anyway, Dante, he got the first try of the night. The Wallabies had already missed a penalty. Was that to be a microcosm of how the match would unfold? 
discipline looked like it was still an issue. They mentioned in the last 38 games, Australia had seen 33 yellow cards and five reds. That's obviously a card a game. That's going to need to stop if they hope to do anything but flame out next month. So for me, it's it's honestly kind of sad and frustrating to watch Australia these days. I am one of the people who thought that Eddie would give them a, a real boost and it almost feels like the opposite at this point. Like, okay, so I saw some online comments, and I, I apologize that I don't remember where I saw this. Um, but the, the general point was, everywhere Eddie Jones has gone, he's had a great deal of success. Therefore, it is most reasonable to assume in this case that it is a player or talent issue, not a coaching issue. And, I mean, that makes a lot of sense on the surface to me, but somehow, I don't know, I just, I just feel like his mojo has gone sour. Uh, Obviously very scientific of me. Either way, they did have a golden opportunity to score late in the first half, but botched it and got held up. France just bopping right down the other way and headed into the break. It was 16 to 5. If Carter Gordon had been on target, that would have been a much more palatable 16 to 10, but that's where we were. Australia, they managed to get a yellow card to make par, and by the start of the final quarter, they were down a player and down 26 to 5. Another quick side note, I don't know the name of the guy uh, taking the lead on comps for this one, but at some point he said, as he was sort of alluding to the unknowable aspect of France's decision-making, he said, well, they're a different race, a beautiful race, but different. Uh, What's that now? Anyway, in the end, the Aussies did find a couple more scores, but so did their hosts. This one was over. France wrapping up their World Cup prep with another win. It was 41-17 to in Saint-Denis. So elsewhere, internationally, it was Spain facing Argentina. I knew this one was going to be tough, but man, oh man, it ended up being complete destruction. The Pumas allowing not a single try and coming up with a staggering 3-62 to win in Madrid. Portugal then hosted Australia A, and the Portuguese struggled going down to the off-brand Aussies 17-30. to And then Chile, they were home to take on an Argentina 15, uh, Argentina, yes, uh, there's a new country I invented, an Argentina 15, they would become the third home team to lose in a row, just getting edged out 26 to 28. So that obviously wrapped up our internationals for this weekend. As I mentioned last week, there's simply no way to cover all of this and three other full-on competitions. So I tried to sort of go with one match from each of the FPC, the NPC in the top 14, with just sort of scores the rest of the way for the rest of the action. I'm I'm committed to keeping this thing, you know, right around that half hour length. Again, this week, it might be a few minutes over. But as always, you know, any thoughts from the listeners are always welcome. Please get in touch. So swinging down to New Zealand for the FPC, it was round seven in the Farrah Palmer Cup. We began with the Auckland Storm facing Canterbury women. It was a great match. The visitors just sneaking one past their hosts, 24 to 27 by the end of that one. Then Counties Monaco, they took on Hawks Bay Tui. That was on Saturday. I have been loving Counties this year. There's just a special vibe about them. They're so cool. Proving me right for a change, uh, the hosts did go hog wild and racked up a massive score over their struggling guests, a huge 63-26 by the final Hooter. Otago, they blasted the North Harbor women, tripling them up easily with a 39-13 victory. And then Tasman versus the Taranaki women was also a bit of a blowout. The Mako beating up their guests 45-20. And then Sunday, finally. This featured Waikato women versus the Wellington Pride, a very, very close contest, with the home team just edging out the visitors, 31-29. to Well, 
It hasn't been easy to parse out, but I think I get it now. Uh, no, actually, no. I Just before I started recording, I looked back at the table again and realized I don't get it at all because the Premiership teams all played six games, while the Championship teams only played five fixtures, but there's seven teams in the Prem and only six in the lower tier. Yeah, I don't get it. Um, what I did deduce eventually is this weekend, Otago versus North Harbor and the Tasman versus Taranaki, those two clashes were effectively quarterfinals or at least, you know, qualifying matches to earn the right to play in the semifinals next weekend. So this competition begins and ends so suddenly, and they don't exactly make it obvious how the playoffs work, but we do have our four semis locked in now. So we'll outline that in the previews, of course. Suffice to say, Counties Monaco, the Volcanics, and the Wellington Pride, they will all miss out on the postseason in the Premiership Division, while Taranaki Women and the North Harbor Hibiscus will be on the outside looking in in the Championship Division. Foof! Then making the lateral move over to the NPC, it was the end of Round 3 and the majority of Round 4 in the National Provincial Championship, which meant on the Storm Week, we had our second consecutive Ranfurly Shield defense as Wellington took on Tasman... On the screen, they showed a graphic announcing Wellington were on a 15-game win streak, but maybe they meant specifically against the Mako, because overall, I put that number at 12. Uh, I decided not to really take notes and just just kind of enjoy this one, um, but I do want to point out one weird thing. So you know how they, they love to show the collective weights of the packs, like usually during the first scrum of a match? I always think that's kind of funny, because... I mean, does it actually mean anything in the first place? We've got huge dudes. Well, we have huge dudes too. Yeah, we get it. The, the thing I find eerie though is, have you noticed how often, just how close those numbers are? Like most of the time it feels like, it's uncanny. In this case, the difference between the two was six kilos, six kilos. When there are eight people on each side, I mean, that's a 0.375 kilogram difference per player. That's absurdly close. I'm, I'm kind of surprised the comms never mention it. It's really fascinating, to me at least. In any event, <clears throat> both teams would miss their opportunities at goal. It was a befuddling 7-0 to nil at halftime, and that's how it would stay the rest of the way. The Mako unable to pull, you know, put anything together at all. And Wellington, they seemed unwilling to do any more than the bare minimum, completing the most boring shield defense I've ever seen. Friday, though. Ooh, we got started. Thing, you know, things got started in earnest with Manawa 2 hosting Northland. I was super keyed up for this one. The Turbo Jacks were desperate for a win, something they hadn't had since October of 2021. This looked like it might be their their best chance at it in some time. Uh, Northland, they saw yellow twice in quick succession, and Mike Rogers' crew built a nice 19-3 lead late in the first half. We had a raft of free jacks involved once again with walks starting alongside uh, Slade McDowell, who's been an absolute workhorse for them this year. We also saw John Poland and Terrell Paita coming on later, which was nice. <clears throat> However, of course, this is the NPC, and no lead is safe. And the visitors really figured things out as the game wore on. Northland, they took their first lead with under 10 minutes to play, and then it added a penalty to force Manawatu to go for a try if they were going to have a win. But some sloppy play gave it right back to the Tanifa as the final buzzer sounded. It was the Turbos with one final shot needing to go the entire length of the field. And guess what? They did exactly that with the clock several minutes past 80. It was a beautifully worked try in the right corner to claw back and snatch that elusive victory. An unbelievable ending. Mike Rogers' first win as a coach of Manawatu, 31-30. to 30, So 
good. The celebrations by the players at the end, you could just see what it meant to this club. And I honestly think this might be the start of something good for the Turbo Jacks. So next up, Auckland, they were looking to take down Hawks Bay, and that Magpie Magic it finally ran out for them as the home team looked comfortable in winning 41-22. to On Saturday, we had Taranaki, as I call them, the Free Bulls, facing the boop in the early slot. I noticed there's a ton of construction happening sort of immediately outside the stadium there. For me, that was a perfect metaphor for a club that is very much building right now. This time, though, they did let it slip away with the Steamers getting a three-point win, 26-29 to at Yero Stadium. Otago versus Southland was in the middle slot. The home side looked well improved from last weekend, dominating most of the way and going on to win 31 to 21, retaining the Donald Stewart Memorial Trophy. What is the Donald Stewart Memorial Trophy, you ask? I have no idea. My efforts to find out completely failed. I suspect because of where I am, like just geolocation-wise. So if you are a listener in New Zealand, I suspect Google will yield much more useful results. As always, please get in touch if you know. And then Canterbury versus Wellington. This was a great contest with the visitors from the capital taking down their hosts 31 to 36. Tasman versus North Harbour was in the evening slot. This one was unlikely to live long in people's memories. The Mako winning 20 to 15. And finally, Waikato, they hosted Counties Monaco on Sunday. Counties never got close. The Mulus more than doubling them up 37 to 15 to finish out the weekend. Auckland versus Manawatu will take over the storm week. So there's always that to look forward to on Wednesday. Okay, back up to France for the top 14. It was round two, which meant Stade Francais versus Oyonna on Friday. Unlike last weekend, the replay listing this matchup actually was this matchup. It was a miracle. Also, this is my first experience with Oyonna, the club, so I quickly looked up the city itself and was a little surprised by what I found from our friends at Wikipedia. Quote, Oyonna is the second most populated commune in eastern France. Oyana lies in a valley in the Jura Mountains in the far north of Ain. It is near the Parc Naturel Régional de Haute-Jura. The city is on the River Ange. Its prominence in the plastics industry has earned it the name Plastics Valley, unquote. I feel like that's not a name you necessarily want. Anyway, <clears throat> is that what L.A. is also called? So this one was a full-scale kicking battle, neither team scoring a try until very, very late in the opening period. It was bad news for the hosts as they found themselves down to 13 players as their guests smashed through to make it a 9-13 to total going into the half. Not to be outdone, Oyana got their second yellow card just before the 50-minute mark. This one was as tight as it gets, if a little ugly, 12-13 to at that stage. After two lead flip-flops, it was Zach Henry tying things at 18 as we began the final quarter of action. And that was when Joey Segond... He came in to earn his 100th cap to the delight of the faithful on hand in Paris. Robbie Nock mentioned that he began his career as a prop. This is, of course, Jean-Luc Segonde. I, I had to get some paper towels after the spit take that that made me do. Oyona brought in a sub who looked, I don't know, 15 years old, and he promptly whiffed two chances to retake the lead. And then, disaster, he had a kick charged down that created a breakaway try. With about a minute left, it was the new Centurion nabbing a perfect drop goal to get a 28-18 win. The Pink Army now 2-0 in the early season. <clears throat> La Rochelle versus Lyon was first thing Saturday. Despite several players in the national squad this week, La Rochelle easily took care of business, winning 35-14. Clermont versus Perpignan. And the following two games, in fact, were our middle matches for the day. Clermont would repeat the scoreline from La Rochelle, but adding an additional pen, it was 38-14. 
At the same time, it was Poe versus Rassing. Poe surprised their guests a bit by sneaking out a close one, 19-17. And then for our final middle match, it was Bordeaux versus Cast. Another two-pointer for the home team. In this case, my Border Beagles getting the W, 25-23. to Then it was Toulon versus Bayonne for the night game. And you know what was kind of surreal? Seeing Alan Wynne-Jones out there in the dark red of Toulon, it just makes you feel like you're seeing things. You know, you keep looking back at the screen like, no, no, what? No, what? Anyway, that being said, I'm, I'm glad he's there. I hope he enjoys his time there. I hope they throw the freaking bank at him. Dude deserves a massive payday. So the game itself wasn't big on scoring in the first half, but it was a tight contest. Bayon looked threatening late, but their host slammed that door shut when Baptiste Serrain came on and grabbed the game by the scruff of the neck like a mama cat reining in an errant kitten. Uh, there was one final bit of hope with under two minutes to go, but a Bayon lineout failed to go straight, handing the ball back to finish this one off, 19-14 to 14 for the home team. And then finally, we had Toulouse versus Montpellier on Sunday. Toulouse continued to be absolutely ruthless, smacking their guests to the tune of 38-13 to 13 to close out round two in the top 14. Okay, by the music, you will all know it is time for this week's Diamond in the Ruck Award. And this week, the award goes to Celestino Ravitomata. Mr. Ravitomata, your leadership, your calm in the face of all sorts of pressure this weekend led your team to an historic win, a victory that will resonate throughout Fiji and the Pacific Islands for decades to come. The giant has at long last been slain, and you, good sir, when it was all over, were the ones standing there holding the sword. Your work, over a full 80 minutes, mind, set the standard for one of the greatest upsets I've ever seen. So, Celestino Ravutalmada, congratulations to you, for you are this week's Diamond in the Ruck. Well done, sir. Okay, of course, that brings us to our updates and previews. Next week, we will have the FPC semifinals, which will mean on Friday, we'll have the Waikato women taking on Auckland and the Manawatu Cyclones hosting the Tasman women. Then on Saturday, we'll have Northland women versus Otago. I mean, Otago's performance this year, it's got to be the best news out of Otago on so many fronts. And finally, the Canterbury women will look to take out the Hawks Bay Tui to set up our two finals the following week. We'll also have the NPC. This week, for the Storm Week fixture, we'll have a tough one with Mike Rogers' Turbo Jacks traveling to Auckland to try to get their second win in like 22 months. But then, for the weekend, we'll start with three Friday fixtures, uh, Northland versus Hawks Bay, Canterbury versus Taranaki, and Boop versus Otago. On Saturday, it's North Harbor versus Waikato, Wellington versus Counties Monaco, and Southland versus Auckland. On Sunday, on just four days rest, Manawatu are again on the road, this time to face Tasman. Very tough couple of weeks indeed. Of course, the top 14 also chugs on round three, featuring Oyana versus Toulouse, Rassing versus Perpignan, Cast versus Bayon, Poe versus Lyon, Stade Francais versus Montpellier, Clermont versus La Rochelle, and Bordeaux-Begle versus Toulon. Keep in mind, this will be the last round until just before Halloween, as they all sit down with a nice cup of tea to hunker down in front of their televisions to watch the Rugby World Cup like all good 
sensible folk everywhere. Well, my friends, that does it for another week. I think I just barely made it. Not feeling too good right now. But I am still buzzing about Fiji. That game instantly vaulted into one of my all-time favorites. I think this was a sort of like a stand-up-and-take-notice-for-the-entire-world kind of moment. I admit, it's entirely possible I'm making way too big a deal out of it and that England just kind of legit suck right now. But I guess we're going to find out, all of us. So, to all of you across the globe, cheers, talk to you soon, and be well. <laughs>